I have the greatest respect for someone who took a leap of faith, walked away from the corporate world, and became certified in reality-based leadership. Now, she is on a mission to help women not only get paid what they are worth, but also to make an impact wherever decisions are being made. Women leaders crushed it during the pandemic. They're more empathetic, more flexible, they're more caring, and we need more of that in leadership because they tend to make more workplace-friendly policies for everybody. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women, a multi-generational conversation about leadership, power, gender, and social justice through a female lens. I'm Ann Doyle. I have a wonderful guest who will be joining us in just a few minutes to share secrets about getting paid what you are worth and making an impact wherever you want to be heard. But I cannot begin our conversation until I share what's on my mind about the horrifying massacre in Ovalde, Texas, by a very sick 18-year-old male armed with a weapon of war. As we record this episode on May 31st, 2022, parents and families are just beginning to bury the 19 children and two teachers who are the latest victims of America's gun culture. I am sick to my bones about imagining 10-year-old children smearing the blood of their classmates on their bodies so the gunman would think they were dead while they repeatedly called 911 begging for help as battle-armed Texas police stood in the hallway for nearly an hour waiting for a janitor to find a key to unlock the classroom door. We are the only country in the world where this happens over and over and over. I was in Chile when this latest massacre occurred and I watched the BBC coverage. The rest of the world watches in disbelief as the body count and gun culture of the United States of America continues to escalate. To me, these are human rights violations. How dare we? challenge other countries in the world for human rights violations when we allow our children to be slaughtered and pretend there is nothing we can do about it. Do you consider yourself pro-life? Well, how pro-life are you? I will be joining millions of other Americans who raise my voice and, and march and take to the streets because we must understand that evil triumphs when good people do nothing. So let's talk about how each of us can build our capacity to raise our voices and to make a positive impact in the world because women's voices are desperately needed. And I am so delighted to have a fantastic young woman joining me to talk about what she is doing. And let me tell you just a little bit about her. Kelly Thompson is, I would call her a next generation leadership coach. She's an author and she's a speaker who earned her stripes in the corporate world with over 10 years of HR leadership experience for financial services and technology organizations. She holds a BA in political science and an MBA. And she got tired of being one of the few women at decision-making tables and listening over and over 
as men dominated the conversations and the decisions. So I have the greatest respect for someone who took a leap of faith, walked away from the corporate world, and became certified in reality-based leadership. Now she is on a mission to help women not only get paid what they are worth, but also to make an impact wherever decisions are being made. And her upcoming book, Closing the Confidence Gap, will be available this summer. Welcome, Kelly Thompson. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. You know, Kelly, you reached out to me and asked me to be a guest on this podcast, which I love. And your email caught my attention right away. You have a secret that makes most women who ask you about salary negotiating, it makes their jaw absolutely drop. And so <laughs> what is this secret that too many women still do not understand about how to get paid what they're worth? You know, it's, it's so simple. The secret is, is I expect you to negotiate. I think, you know, when it comes to asking for what we're worth, talking about money, it's never been something that's as easy as to talk about as the weather, you know? And so I think when yeah. it comes time to talk about what we make, what we need to make to talk about and negotiate our salaries, I think sometimes that people who are looking for jobs forget that those of us on the other end, when I've sat in human resources roles, when I've sat in recruitment roles, when I've overseen human resources, like money is just day in, day out for us. It's a little bit like the weather. We're talking about compensation all the time. We're talking about money. We negotiate with people several times a day. So we just kind of expect you to negotiate. We don't have all that emotional baggage coming into the conversation. And so that's a secret I wish every woman would know that would make them feel a little bit safer is I'm expecting you to negotiate and it's safe. It's just money for us. It's astonishing to me as a baby boomer woman who at this point has 50 years literally of experience in the, in the business world, hearing that women still hesitate to negotiate what the heck is going on? And, and it's the same thing. The men have no problem and the women still hesitate. Yeah, you're right. In fact, there's research that shows that on average, men negotiate their salary four times more than women. And when they do, they ask for more. And so I can speak to the work that I've had with my own clients or when I was in corporate and I was talking with, with women. A lot of times it comes from our story. You know, a lot of us were taught growing up that like, I'll just use, actually, I'll use my own example. When I was a little girl, I was curious. I wanted to know about all sorts of things. I wanted to know, you know, why the world worked the way it did. I was super fascinated with the weather and what caused tornadoes and lightning. And, you know, I, my, my baby sister was much younger than me. So I had no problem asking my mom, well, how, why is my baby sister so much younger than us? How did she get here? And I remember asking them about money, like, <laughs> how much do you make? And my mom would say, oh, honey, it's not polite to talk about money. And I know that I am Ooh. not the only person whose mom or dad or parent or guardian has said something very well-meaning like, Ooh, we shouldn't ask people how much we make. We shouldn't talk about money. Some of my clients hear things like, Oh, if I ask, I'm going to look greedy or, you know, we shouldn't ask for more money. We should be grateful for what we have. I shouldn't have to ask. Everybody has a money story. And so I would invite you that's listening to really think about, do you have a money story? 
Like, what was the message that you heard growing up about money? Because my hunch is, is that if you're a woman, your money story is probably a little bit different than a man's money story. And it has something along the lines of don't ask as the underlying feature of that money story. And so I think a lot of that is really ingrained. And so then when we get into the corporate world, it's this weird conversation that we've never talked about. So everybody feels like a baby deer trying to do it, or they just avoid it entirely because it just feels really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, but men are raised by the same parents. I mean, part of this must be the bigger corporate messages that everyone receives. Mm -hmm. And maybe that goes to the, the history in our country and maybe the world about the men the male is the provider, the male earns the money and yes. I'll take care of all this. Don't you worry your pretty little head about that. You take care of the kids. And is that a piece of it? For some families, it is. For some families, they have sat down and you know that has been the story for, for the daughters. And then for the men, they're taught about the finances, how things work, you know, depending on you know if they run a family business or if they're in corporate, they're more likely to be mentored on financial decisions and yeah. careers. I mean, the conversations are just different. And you've had guests who've talked about this in the past, that what we choose to talk about to our girls versus what we choose to talk about to our boys can be vastly different based on, you know, the, our, our family's history, the culture that we're, that we're brought up in. And so there's no one single message. I think it's about slowing down and asking yourself is what message have I always been taught? And is that working for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Take the time to do that, to really uh, think back and try to remember when it started. You talk about five steps. I mean, will, will you walk our listeners through some of the steps. I mean, they hear you and they've got to figure out their story, but then what? How do they prepare? Yeah, that's so important. And so I like to, like, let's just start with the data. Like, let's just find the data, step one. Okay, if you want to talk about money, I think sometimes when you can anchor yourself to facts, it can be really helpful as a grounding place to say, oh, this is what I'm being paid in the market. This is what the market looks like. So there's some places you can go. Good news is, is that many states are passing requirements where they have to post salary ranges on the job. And so this provides an extra layer of transparency on which you can get your data. You can go to salary.com. You can go to payscale.com. You can Google your state's Bureau of Labor Statistics or your state's wage estimate system, and it will actually give you government reported data on the jobs that people are working and what they're being paid in those roles. So I, I love to like, let's just arm ourselves with data first. What am I making or what am I applying for? And what are the, what's this job actually being paid in the marketplace for my years of experience, et cetera. So once we kind of, you know, gather the data, I always then tell people to move on to step two. Like, let's just prep our ask. So let's look at the data and then ask yourself. I love to use a good, better, best framework. So like, what would be a good number? That would, you know, based on my data, that I think I, I need in my salary, what would be a better number? And then what would be a best number? And sometimes, you know, when we can have a range of good, better, best, that's helped me go into salary negotiations. One, not only asking for the number that kind of intuitively feels right, but I feel like it gives me like negotiating power. Like, well, if I'm going to go off for that best number, but I set all my better number, then I still feel like, you know, I'm being re rewarded equitably. So find the data, step one. Step two, prep your ass, kind of find your good, better, best number. And then number three, I want you to actually like write down besides just the data, like what else do you bring 
to the organization? What value do you bring? Think back on your past experiences. What have you contributed to organizations and what's have been the result on that? So it's really about owning your value. So step four, practice your ask. And I think that this is really important and there's lots of ways you can practice your ask. You can write it down and just simply write it as a script. Sometimes people find that the act of writing just kind of gets them into a flow, gets out of their head and onto paper. Some people can practice in front of the mirror. They practice in front of their pet, their partner. It doesn't <laughs> matter, right? You can practice in front of the camera. Like everybody's got, you know, a cell phone these days. We can record ourselves. So once we practice our ask, I want you to be very clear about presenting your data, presenting why you're asking for this. These are the qualifications that I have. And these are the results that I've earned because of this. And so this is the value that I can bring. And so then step five is make the ask. Actually show up to the conversation with, you know, you're going to feel nervous and that's okay. And I always tell folks, you know what, if you wait until you feel hundred percent confident, like you will never, ever make this ask. So you can show up to this ask ready and nervous, confident and a little scared. And that's okay. So just to recap that it's find the data, it's prep your ask, own your value, practice your ask, and then make the ask with confidence. I love it. And that same pattern, those same steps can be used by someone who is in the same job and perhaps has discovered that Oh boy, you know, I, I came in getting paid way too little and the, my male mm -hmm. peers are making a whole lot more than I am and I want to correct the situation. Anything a little different or I guess it's, it's the same thing, right? It can be very similar. So I'll just give you an example. I had a client who actually discovered that a male peer of hers was making significantly more, significantly more. And so she did, she followed something very similar. She kind of like, okay, before I freak out, I'm going to go out into the universe and just kind of see what's out there. I'm going to look at some data. And she found some data and that data did say that maybe she was a little underpaid. She'd been with the company for a long time, which is interesting because there's a, like research out there that says that if you stick with a company for a long time, you can tend to be underpaid as compared to people they recently hire in. This is especially true during the great resignation. So that was kind of the situation she was, she was in, been there a while. Some of the new folks coming in were making a little more than her. So she found that, that good, that good data. And so she wrote down, okay, well, here's the things that I've done in my career with them. And here's the results that it's had. And here's the impact that it's had. And for her, it was really though, I think she had to take an extra step not to let her ego or disappointment or resentment get in the way. You know, she could feel all those right. things. It, and it is, I mean, I, I would feel those things too, but she had to wait until she was in a good place where she could go and just say, Hey, you know what? I've been doing some research. She didn't need to come and say, oh, I found out my, I'm being underpaid. She's like, Hey, I just did some research. Here's the data that. that I found. Here's the results that I've been earning. I think it's worth taking a look at if I'm being paid fairly and equitably, you know, based on what other people are being paid in my position. And so, you know, she really kind of had to pause to make sure that this was coming from a place of being in alignment with her values and not from a place of resentment, because as you know, sometimes those feelings bubble up, but they can take us down a place we don't want to go. To me, it's a little bit like weightlifting. You know, you start with the small ones and you just build up your strength and just the more you do it, the, the more comfortable it gets. Mm -hmm. So I want to know how you figured all this out, because as you shared with us, I mean, you got those same messages as, as a young girl asking these questions a precocious young girl, but you were also told, oh, don't really talk about that. So was it in your leadership role in HR 
where negotiating with a lot of different people, is that where the light went on for you? I'm so glad you asked. So when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a meteorologist. I wanted to be the TV weather girl. So I wasn't even thinking about money. And my mom was a speech pathologist, but in call, and so that's when we had the don't talk about the money conversation. But then when I was in college, she actually switched careers. She left speech pathology and she went to go be a financial advisor. And one weekend when I was home on break, I was right before graduation. She pulled out this little paper slider tool that showed me based on how much money I invested per month, how much money I would have at retirement. And there was this little interactive slider tool. And for the first time, she kind of started to change that messaging. She's like, we really need to talk about money and savings. And that kind of opened the door a little bit. And I was fascinated. I was like, oh, like this is way sexier than the time value of money stuff they teach you in the textbooks, right? <laughs> and so then I, you know, I go into my real career. I'm working at a bank, you know, and yeah, we're talking about money and investments and those sorts of things. But it was in my job as an HR person, I was in charge of employee orientation. So people would come in for the first day, they would sign their offer letters. This was back when things were paper. Okay. So like none of this was digital. And I would walk around and I would pick up all of their offer letters and I would see numbers like 75,000, 100,000, 125,000, 50,000, like all over the place. And it wasn't the numbers themselves because I thought to myself, you know, I think this is what these people, this, this is market pay for these individuals. But what got me was the slow realization that because I was in HR and because I had access to some employee compensation data, I'm like, you know, I don't think that people inside the organization are making this. It was kind of illuminating what I just described, which is newly hired people into the organization can sometimes, if the if it isn't calibrated, be, be making a little bit more than the folks already there. And since I was doing a lot of things with leaders, I thought to myself, I'm like, well, most of these leaders were hiring are men because they were at the very senior levels. And I thought to myself, well, women in similar positions definitely aren't making this. And I didn't have language for it at the time because this was many, many years ago. But it's what we call now the gender pay gap. It's yeah. that, you know, men on average make about 20% more than women. And when it's a woman of color, the gap is even greater. Did not have gender pay gap language at the time, but it was at that time where I slowly started to go, huh, hmm. So then I started doing my own research and that's where I started to find the data and then being in HR and listening to conversations and being on the other end of people negotiating, all of the pieces kind of started to come together and I started to watch what went well in good salary negotiations and what didn't go well in the other ones. And then just over all of those years of being in human resources and practicing my own asks, that's kind of how I came up with all of those steps. So that's how we got from money being, hey, something we don't talk about to, hey, money should be as easy to talk about as the weather. Tell us about your business now, how you're working with women, but first, how you got the courage to take that leap. Yeah, many small steps. I was working for a very secure and stable, large bank, you know, never, ever would have imagined being an entrepreneur. In fact, I pretty much told people, I'm like, I don't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body, right? And the universe laughs. And, you know, then I went to a smaller (laughs) tech startup and I kind of saw how nimble smaller companies were. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I worked there for a few years and I had an opportunity then to actually go work for an author and a leadership consultant. And she was an entrepreneur. She had a staff of about six people. And so then I went even smaller and I saw her do it. And to be honest, this is why I love this conversation. Watching a female entrepreneur be successful in the world was so empowering to me because it was like, oh, that's how she does it. 
This is how this is possible. And that's why I think it's so important for women to be in the rooms where decisions are made because when we can watch someone else see how it's possible, it opens doors for us. I was traveling a lot though. So I was doing leadership training, leadership consulting. I started to take on some one-to-one leadership coaching, but I was at some points traveling 50% of the time. My daughter was in middle school and I started to miss stuff. I had just met my, my husband, my now husband. I just wanted to be home. Like there was careers where I'd been on the road and it was just losing a lot of its luster. And so I had two choices. I could go find another job in corporate that didn't travel as much. Or I talked to my boss because I was just loving all of this leadership coaching, this one-to-one leadership coaching. And she said, you know, if you want to take that piece of the business and go off on your own, she's like, I'll let you take or keep this one client that we had. And by no means did this one client replace my salary. It was maybe like 20% of my salary, but it was just enough where I could take that brave leap and say, you know what, if I'm ever going to go off on my own. Am I ever going to do something and focus on something I absolutely love? Like now was the time. Now is going to be it. And it was wonderful because I had this one kind of client to fall back on while I was building my business, but I got off the road. COVID hit. I lost like (laughs) 80% of my income in like six weeks because a lot of speaking events were canceled. A lot of my corporate clients canceled coaching contracts. But what that did was it allowed me to ask the question, like, if this can't get any worse, what do I really want to do? And the answer was, is I want to work with women. I loved working with women on confidence, helping them accelerate to the rooms. And I decided to pivot and shift my entire business around women's leadership coaching. And I've, I've never looked back. Tell me about the clients that you have, because I mean, we're now moving into probably Gen Y women, and maybe it's a little early for the Gen Zs. I mean, they're just coming out of college. Is is that your sweet spot in terms of who are the women who are looking for this kind of support to sort of turbocharge their careers? Yes. My most women who come to me are ages 30 to 55. And two things are usually true. Number one, they've just been promoted into their highest level of leadership, or they know they're about to. Okay. So then that's when we're talking about Gen Y millennials, right? And they have this feeling of kind of doubt, imposter syndrome. Can I really lead at this next level? My career is accelerating, or I know it's about to accelerate. I need the confidence and skills to level up my leadership and be successful at this next level, or to be clear about what that next level looks like. So that's usually client type number one. Client type number two, which has really been pronounced here recently, is somebody And lots of times these folks are usually in the 40 to 55 range are going, you know what? COVID showed me that this is not worth it. I've never wanted this career. I'm not happy. I'm burnt out. Like I did this because my parents said it was a good idea, but now like I, it's made me slow down and ask myself, what do I really want to be when I grow up? And so we're working on a career change. We're really slowing down and asking ourselves those questions on what do you value? What lights you up? What, you know, what makes you happy? What career should you be in? And then really helping them kind of take those right next steps for them to make the right career choices so that they feel a little more happy and fulfilled. So those are usually the two types of folks that I work with. We are in a really interesting time now. Obviously, the whole paradigm has just like broken and shifted and and almost starting over. I mean, there's an opportunity for the Gen Ys, but particularly the Gen Zs to sort of like rebuild the whole structure. What do you see as the opportunity and the advice for women as they move back in or being begged by their companies to come back in? What's, What's the opportunity here for them to shape things the way they want to work? 
Yeah, I think it's a twofold opportunity. And I talk about this in my book that this is all both and. So let's start with what the organization needs to do. Because women have so been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, more of them have left, more of them are burnout. Organizations need to systemically look at their policies. It's time for them to, and I wrote about this, I wrote a whole article for Parents Magazine about this, about how organizations to keep and attract working moms back in the workplace, we need to see more women in leadership. We need more women making policies. We need more women making decisions because they tend to make more family-friendly, flexible decisions. It's why women were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, but it's also why we, research shows that women leaders crushed it during the pandemic. They're more empathetic, yeah. they're more flexible, they're more caring, and we need more of that in leadership because they tend to make more workplace-friendly policies for everybody. Organizations need to look and see, who am I delegating tasks to? Am I giving men all the good strategic tasks? And then giving women all the office housework tasks that's boosting their unpaid workload and keeping them busy, but not actually giving them work that impacts their pay or affects them at promotion time. And then there's the other side of that, the and side of that for women. It's really important for us to use these asking skills that I just gave in the beginning of the podcast about asking for the work that you want. This doesn't just work with money. This works with sitting down with your boss saying, this is what I would like to focus on. These are the things that I have on my plate. What things can I take off of my plate so I can be more strategic about you know, X, Y, and Z? It's about noticing when you're being delegated what, what is called by Linda Babcock as non-promotable tasks. That's the office housework stuff, party planning, changing the printer cartridge, like that sort of stuff, <laughs> note-taking in the meetings. How can I dump and delegate those sort of tasks because I know that they're not going to, one, show up on my performance review, and two be rewarded monetarily or with a promotion at work. So that's my answer. It's both. And organizations need to take a look at their policies. We need more women in leadership and women can also step into their own power by having courageous conversations, just like they would with money about their own well-being and their own workload. You have a book coming out. Yeah. That obviously you've been working on this during the pandemic too. closing the confidence gap. Tell us about your book. I was a little guilty of sitting in my boss's office one day saying I would, I always wanted to write a book, but I would never, ever, ever, ever write a leadership book. And as we know, like this, this (laughs) doesn't bode well for me. But when just like you'll never be an entrepreneur. I know, I know. And so then once I got out into entrepreneur, so I was in corporate training and leadership development my entire career. Corporate leadership development is what I call neck up leadership development. It's all about strategy, processes, PL statements, putting a PowerPoint deck together, you know, learning the process of giving feedback. It's all like created by men for men. There's a lot of legacy things happening. We didn't talk about a lot of the stuff that impacts women. In fact, the confidence gap actually is a study that came out of Wharton and they had men and women take a standardized test. They didn't tell them how they did on the test, but they were supposed to go and advocate to potential employers how well they thought they did on the test. And basically basically how well they advocated for their abilities determined who got hired and then what they were paid. So as you all can probably imagine, men did a little better with self-advocacy. So they got the job, they got higher pay, but guess who actually did better on the test? Women did better on the test, but we just haven't had the confidence and they call it the confidence gap. So their recommendation from the study is, well, maybe we just need to tell women that they did a little better and their confidence will follow suit. And so my book 
talks about, actually, that's not all that helpful. Number one, we need to change the systems at work. That's one thing that we talk about in the book is all of the systems at work that women have to kind of navigate in the workplace today and how they can do that and how the systems need to change. But then step two, it teaches them everything about leadership development that I never learned in corporate America. I had to go out into entrepreneurship to learn these things where I would be in circles of women and we would actively talk about imposter syndrome. Like we never talked about imposter syndrome in corporate. We actively talked about what it was like to be the only woman in the room, how to speak up, the challenges of being a mom. We'd be in these, you know, entrepreneur and business leadership meetings and there'd be women breastfeeding, there'd be kids in the back. I mean, it was just such a like open and welcoming place to talk about women's unique challenges that I was like, well, this is what we needed in corporate America. All those years I was doing it, it's right here. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll just build it because I know how to make training programs. I've, I made them for over a decade in corporate. And so my book started as my Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program, but I wanted more people to have access to it, you know, through a $25 book or whatever it'll cost you, cheaper if it's an ebook. And so that's where the book came around is how do I address both the systemic issues in the workplace that need to be fixed while also helping women step into their own power and lead with more clarity and confidence and actually talk about the women's leadership topics that impact specifically women in the corporate workplace today. Awesome. And that's going to be coming out September, right? So there's a paper shortage. November 1st is the new date. I got the new official date because, you know, now that we're out of COVID and we're in this inflation thing, there's all these backups. So November 1st is the date. Baby formula and paper shortage now. Yeah. And chips yep. for vehicles. I love the photo on your website where you're wearing a t-shirt with the Ruth Bader Ginsburg photo and her quote, women belong everywhere that decisions are being made. And I'm curious, how do you think about the word feminist? For, for my generation, it was a, a very empowering kind of word. And then it went through all kinds of backlash. How do you think of that word today? And how do you describe yourself? For a long time, when I viewed the word feminist, the word that came before it was angry. And maybe that's because of all the media depictions that we would see of like people like shouting or being angry or like burning bras or, you know, stuff that you would see from like the 60s and 70s. But when I think about that, I really had to kind of rewrite like, oh, like I can be a feminist without embodying this, this angry, polarizing figure. Right. And so when I really thought about, I was like, oh, I didn't really thought of myself as one. I was like, well, I guess I am. But when I think about the word feminist, I really think about somebody who uses her feminine energy to advocate for equality for everyone. And that's what I love about Ruth is that Ruth was a feminist not because she said things like, oh, the future is female. And it's like this angry battle cry, but a lot of the things that Ruth did, and if you've ever read any of her biographies, which I highly recommend, was that she would actually call people to equity by highlighting how inequity that particularly affected women actually affected men too. And when I think about my own work, I'm always thinking of the both and. Like, how can this advance women and organizations? How can this advance women in the workplace and everyone else around them? And so that's kind of what I think about when I think about my approach to, to feminism. And I love you're using the, the, the femme in feminist to highlight the, the feminine energy and, and the importance of that, of what the world needs. And when I think about what happened in Texas, 
and has happened way too many times in our country. I mean, I'm hungry for the feminine mm -hmm. energy, the mothers, the mothers of this world to rise up and say, this has to stop. Mm -hmm. This has to stop. Yes. Anything you want to say about that? How are you feeling? Yeah, you know, I, again, I probably always go to like the both end of it. I struggle because I'm a gun owner. I've taken concealed carry classes. You know, I've taken gun training because you know, I take it seriously. Like as a female, I thought, you know, I should, you know, at some point in my life, I was like, maybe I should have a gun to protect myself. It is not an AR-15. I will spoil it for you. My family is hunters. That. Yeah, we, we, I grew up around guns my whole life because our family enjoys hunting. And we have to start to ask some serious questions about the practicality of, do we really need an AR-15? You know, if you want to have, there's nothing inherently wrong with owning firearms, but is there something broken about access to assault weapons? Yeah. I think that that deserves to be take, taken a look at. You know, we talked in our own household about that it was more, it's more difficult to rent a car than to get an assault weapon. <laughs> it's more yeah. difficult to, I saw this on the, on the internet, but like, it's more difficult to get, is it Sudafed behind the counter? <laughs> is to get, you know, a firearm. And so it's really starting yeah. to ask the questions of is, should there be an age restriction? You know, is there any sort of limitations we should place on specifically assault weapons, which we know that if you would go back and look at the data, that's the majority of which these crimes are committed. And so when I talk about, you know, we need more women in all places where decisions are being made, one that includes the government, it includes government policy to be, to ensure that all voices are being heard you know, but also taking, you know, following the money is, you know, who's supporting these candidates and, you know, who are they really loyal to? Are they loyal to the people that they're representing or are they loyal to the money that they're getting in from lobbying groups? And that's not just the NRA, but it's just lobbying groups in general. So that's where I'm at. It's something I wrestle with all the time because I don't think the answer is black and white. And when you try to make it black and white, it makes it worse. I think the answer is complex and we have to kind of find that nuance and find the right way forward for the, the most people. Right. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. I know that many of our listeners are going to want to know more about how to reach you. So if they're interested in your book, if they're interested in possibly working with you, how can they reach you? They can reach me for the book at closingtheconfidencegap.com forward slash book. You can also go to my website at kellyraythompson.com. I'm Kelly with an I and Ray with an E. I love to hang out on Instagram and LinkedIn. So Instagram, my handle is at Kelly Ray Thompson and then LinkedIn it's in forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson. So you can find me there and we can, we can chat. Okay. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Any last word that you want to uh, rally and cry for women? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, let's just go back to, you know, you are worth asking for in whatever situation you're in, whether it's asking for your workload to be reduced, whether it's asking to be paid fairly, you know, whether it's asking for your ideas to be heard, whether it's in the organization, or if you're really fed up with everything going on right now, do what I did and write your senator. You know, there's ways that you can make asks in every areas of your life to speak up and get what you need. That's it. Thank you so much, Kelly. You're Thank fantastic. You. Keep up the great work. It, it, Thank you for it having inspires me. me. It inspires me to know there are women such as you stepping up to the front lines. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly Thompson, leadership coach, speaker, author of the upcoming book, Closing the Confidence Gap, and a very skilled ally for helping women to get paid what you're worth 
and to develop the confidence you need to achieve whatever goals and dreams you have set for yourself. Now let's all go power up. Thanks for joining us at Power Up Women. We hope you'll keep listening. And if you can spare a couple of minutes, please rate me on Google, Apple, or your favorite podcast platform. It really helps build visibility for Power Up Women and helps other aspiring women to find this wonderful conversation with Kelly Thompson. And remember, when one woman rises, we all rise. Make sure you reach back and lift others as you climb. I'm Ann Doyle.